This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts and genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by three guests. Teresa Kruselbrink, a licensed certified genetic counselor, supervisor, and co-director for the Genomics in Action Strategic Initiative in the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In this role, she and her team collaborate to discover, translate, and apply new individualized medicine tools and services across the three sites of the Mayo Clinic enterprise. Dr. William Palmer, who is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Mayo Clinic Florida. He serves as an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine and runs a hereditary hematochromatosis clinic for Mayo Florida and Dr. Matthew Ferber, Mayo Clinic Lifer, an Associate Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, and also the Founder and Director of the Mayo Clinic Gene Guide Laboratory, a population genetics company within Mayo Clinic striving to sequence every Mayo Clinic patient. Welcome team. The topic today is genomics and healthcare. Why does it matter? Teresa, I'd like to start with you. You know, I'm a clinician, and often the question is, gosh, when do we send our patients to you? Genetic counseling, it seems like such a big field, and there's 23andMe, but there's so much more. What do we tell our clinician colleagues about how can genetics counseling help us take better care of patients? I think the answer to that question is changing. And the reason I say that is it used to be that genetics was restricted to a very small number of people who either had a particular diagnosis that looked like it could have a genetic component to it, or they had a really strong family history of that particular disease. But now we're really moving into a world where genetics is important to almost everyone to the extent that we have clinics available that allow healthy people to have their genome sequenced to learn about new risks. And so the simple and broad answer is you could send any patient to a genetic counselor at any time, and it would be our job to figure out what it is that the patient is worried about, concerned about, And we would work with them to determine what, if any type of testing might be helpful. 
genetic testing is not necessarily for everyone. And it really depends on the types of answers that you're seeking as to whether or not that might be useful. That sounds terrific. I know often patients will have a lot of concerns about number one, the cost. And then secondly, what about the implications for insurance? And that's a broad category. Are there some general guidelines or general things that clinicians should know about that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because that has also changed quite drastically. It was not uncommon even three to five years ago that genetic testing was always in the thousands of dollars. And now there are genetic tests that are available for a few hundred dollars and more and more insurances are starting to cover genetic testing. So I wouldn't out of the gate say that genetic testing is cost prohibitive to everyone. That's not to say that all genetic tests are cheap at this point, but the cost has come down considerably. So I wouldn't let that be the barrier to start with without investigating further what's needed for the patient. With regards to concerns about use of genetic information, it is a really common concern. I think most of the time we can be pretty reassuring. And I say that for two reasons. One is there is a law in place called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. We shorten that up to call it GINA. And that is put in place at a federal level to protect individuals from health insurance discrimination and employment discrimination, meaning that health insurers and employers cannot use a person's genetic information to discriminate against them. There are some exceptions to that, and we always talk through that with patients. The other big concern that's out there is the use of that information for life insurance. And that's a a true concern, meaning that it's not protected information, but neither is anything in a person's medical records. So usually when I talk to a patient about the impact of genetics and life insurance, I say, yes, it is a risk, but for people who are part of group plans, your health information is not used for that. So that wouldn't come to light there. If you were trying to seek a bigger life insurance plan, yes, a life insurance company can have access to your health record, but they can see that you have high cholesterol. They can see all of that information and the genetic piece of it may just be one piece of that. So it it can have an impact. The other possibility is people can seek life insurance policies before they would have genetic testing. Um, And that's another opportunity for them to not have to worry about that. Great. Thanks, Teresa. So Dr. Palmer, hemochromatosis, that's a pretty common problem, isn't it? I mean, should we be screening everybody for hemochromatosis or, or when should I as a clinician start to get worried about that? Hello, uh, thank you so much for the question. You know, hereditary hemochromatosis is an incredibly common disease, specifically among the Caucasian population, those from, you know, Northern Irish descent, et cetera. The advantage of the screening tests that we have for this condition, which are Iron labs, ferritin, iron percent saturation. The advantage of of them is that they are inexpensive and readily available. They're incredibly sensitive for the disease. The disadvantage is that they are commonly elevated for other conditions outside of genetic iron overload. And so because of this, we're left with the need to perform 
basic genetic testing on these patients when we have a suspicion for the condition. Thankfully, the genetic test has now become, as uh, Teresa mentioned, uh, much less expensive and covered under the lion's share of insurance plans for those with either a, a symptom related to hemochromatosis or those with a first degree relative who have the genes. And so because of that, through basically any lab, certainly Mayo Clinic and other labs, you can get this testing done and you can find out very quickly if you carry the permissive genes for hereditary hemochromatosis. And despite the fact that we have good screening tests, we do need these genetic tests in order to make the diagnosis. So I would say to a primary care physician, if you have clinical suspicion for the disease, which can be something as nonspecific as fatigue and joint pain, to incredibly specific things like the iron fist, the second and third metacarpal joint arthritis, if you have these findings or a first degree relative with this condition, you can perform basic iron labs. And if those labs are elevated, you can perform genetic testing. So I would say if you have suspicion and you have an elevation in iron labs, you would go forward with the HFE genetic testing, which you can get on a, on a, on a routine basis now. And I guess the bigger question is, so do you send them all to see Teresa? Do you call them up and say, call your mom, call your dad, call your family. Right. They all need to see Teresa or as primary care doctors or as clinicians, if I've got somebody where their first degree relative has it or somebody else has it, should we be sending those folks for genetic counseling before ordering the tests? They probably so need some counseling anyway, or should we be getting the tests? Right. I would encourage our primary care army to be empowered to order this test when they have suspicion. There are not as many Teresas as we need in healthcare. And so this is a simple first step that any primary care provider can perform if they have clinical suspicion. I would say if you have, if you have a first degree relative or you have either biochemical or clinical suspicion for the disease to feel very comfortable in ordering that test, when you get the results back, there's really only about six possible findings that you would have. And any of those findings, it's gonna tell you exactly in the report what the percentage chance is, what to do next, and if there is a suspicion, then go on and refer to somebody like me or Teresa for that condition. And it matters, right? I mean, the clinical implications of undiagnosed oh, yeah. hemochromatosis, because I think that's the other thing. We get some labs that are off a little bit and yes. we go, oh, no big deal. But I mean, I think you're an expert in this field. So tell me, what can we tell our audience about why do we need to make this diagnosis? You sure. mentioned it's common. And why shouldn't we ignore these hints and clues that we should go out and get the genetic testing? So you're right up my alley with this one. This is the reason why I got interested in this condition. In an era of pharmaceuticals, what an elegant disease that we can identify early in life. And we simply phlebotomize these patients, the same you know, type of treatment we've been doing with leeches for a long time. And you basically reduce or eliminate the chance of a significant complication, which can include cancer. I would say that you have up to a third or more of people running around with significant clinical iron overload that is causing significant damage to their organs, including their heart, liver, joints, pancreas, adrenal glands, testosterone, all of these things that can cause significant complications. And if you identify this condition early, 
you can enroll this patient in routine phlebotomy and their risk of having a complication from their hemochromatosis is essentially zero. And you've not put that patient on a medication. You've enrolled them in phlebotomy. You've taken some blood from them uh, and you've drastically almost to zero reduced their chance of having a significant complication. So the question regarding general population screening is actually a little bit controversial. There are some of us who believe that we should be more aggressive with our screening. I would say that if you have any suspicion or any hint of any family member or any predisposition to investigate at least with some screening is absolutely reasonable to do. Well, I think you really illustrate why genomics and healthcare, it really does matter. And it's not just for the subspecialist. It's not just for Mayo Clinic. It really is for every clinician out there as we start to think about individualizing healthcare and identifying these high-risk individuals. But the question to you, Dr. Ferber, is does the gene guide find these people or tell me how your work with your product and company, how does this interplay and interface with patients? and clinicians to help us further the care of patients. First of all, Denise, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of the conversation. I've already enjoyed just sitting in and listening to the experts talk about their specific areas of genetic practice here at the Mayo Clinic. But specifically speaking about Mayo Clinic Gene Guide, we're really at the forefront, I think, of doing what you would consider to be pre-symptomatic DNA screening for these types of conditions that we're talking about. Now, we don't screen for hereditary hemochromatosis, and Dr. Palmer, I think, started to allude on some of the reasons why that could be complicating, and we could talk for a long time about uh, what's appropriate for population-based screening versus not. So we're starting with a small list. And the list that we're beginning with has been endorsed by the CDC, and it's the so-called CDC Tier 1 condition, genetic conditions, and they are around three primary areas of care. First is hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. The other is around hereditary colorectal cancer. And the final is around hereditary hypercholesterolemia. And so along those conditions, there's a handful of genes that uh, clinicians have been studying for years. These aren't things that are new in the literature. They're well understood and they've been well studied. And at the end of the day, what we know is that if you have an actionable variant in any one of these genes causing these conditions, there is something concrete that can be done to help manage your risks. So it goes back to the old adage of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If we're able to use this genetic information to tailor the treatment on these patients, outcomes are going to be better. It's going to be less burdensome on the healthcare system. And overall, the global healthcare economy, if you will, will be in a better position because of this screening. Now, I did say, and you did mention as part of my bio in the beginning, that Mayo Clinic Gene Guide strives to sequence every Mayo Clinic patient. We're not there yet. Uh, we know that that's going to take time. There are many, many challenges between here and getting to that point that we really need to clear. And one of those Dr. Palmer alluded to, and that's that we don't have enough Teresa Crusobrinks to help us communicate these genetic results when we find positive test results. Others are cost. We did talk about cost and 
while the cost is coming down, it's still not at the point where it's a, a non-issue, we'll say. It's better, but it's still a bit of an issue. So we're working with the Center for Individualized Medicine on a very large study that we call the tapestry study. And within the tapestry study, we are looking for 100,000 Mayo Clinic participants who are willing to have their CDC tier one genes sequenced right now and have a clinical report returned back to them and put in their electronic medical record. If they are positive, we will treat them as such and help them take the next steps for their healthcare journey. If they're negative, that's great too. And that information will go into their electronic medical record. And our providers and counselors will help them understand that while they're negative, that doesn't mean that they're at zero risk. And so we'll have that conversation. Almost more powerful though, is the way that this data is being collected. Even though we're just looking at this small panel, the CDC tier one, Mayo now has access to that individual's entire exome, which if you think about a genome, a genome is like the entire apple. The exome is just the tiny little slice through that apple that codes for all of the proteins that make you, you, and me, me as an organism. And so we have all of that information in hand now to take a look longitudinally into that patient's electronic medical record to see if there aren't new diseases that we can discover or new treatments that we can provide to patients when they turn up ill or if they turn up ill in the future. That's actually very interesting and exciting. I mean, I think back to when I trained and we didn't talk about tier one diseases. We didn't talk about screening for genetic diseases in this way. But as you talked about this, it brought to mind a recent change in guidelines that will have a dramatic impact on what I do in my office, which is that they just decided to change the guidelines for colon cancer screening. When I think about colon cancer screening, I think about let's have the colonoscopy talk or let's have the cologuard talk or the fecal occult blood talk. And now the screening age, they're saying we should start screening at 45. Is that related to the fact that we're starting to recognize genetic predisposition to cancer or are they unrelated? No, I think they're exactly related. And I think what we'll find, in fact, is that as we go forward with population-based screening, we are going to be able to put people into more defined buckets. Right now, we have one bucket, and maybe two. Sometimes we say males at this age, females at this age. But primarily, we have those sex-described buckets that we, we advocate for different screening protocols. Now, if you layer over that pre-symptomatic genetic testing, if you have a positive result, that could actually say, even though we may not have known you had a family history with this positive result, 45 is too late. That is too late for us to initiate screening based on your genetic profile. So let's bring that in. I don't want to be so bold as to mention a date concretely. But I imagine that some of those people will have that reduced even by a decade or more based on their genetic profile. And the flip side will also be true. Depending on the test that was used to screen you, if it was complete enough, there may be a statement that says, you know what, you don't have to worry about it until 50 or you don't have to worry about it until 55, thereby directing the resources to those who are most in need. 
and not wasting them, so to speak, on those individuals who are actually at a much lower risk than what we appreciate today because everybody's lumped into one bucket. I think you said a couple of really important things, though. I think you said there will be that group at risk, but there will also be a group that aren't at increased risk, but still at risk. We need to keep in mind that if you're at increased risk, that doesn't mean if you don't fall into that group, that doesn't mean you're not at any risk. That's right. Um, and that's one of the most important educational concepts that needs to be driven home is reduced risk does not mean no risk. And Teresa and I have spent a lot of time building reports, both in our day job, if you will, back in our department of lab medicine and pathology in the diagnostic lab and creating the right language so people understand a concept that's called residual risk. And residual risk is after I've had a certain test done, what is the likelihood that something was missed still leaving me at some level of risk for developing the disease? Almost more importantly, when you get to the general population, it needs to be very clear that when a result says we did not find an alteration, we cannot leave the impression that you are at zero risk. They have to know that Yes, their risk has been modified somewhat, but it is not zero in any shape or form. You know, I often use the analogy of a jar with marbles when I talk to patients about risk, and we all have a risk for disease. If you think about a genetic risk like a BRCA mutation for breast cancer, that is a big marble in your jar. Most of us have a lot of tiny little marbles that can include things like our lifestyle and our age and our other exposures that contribute to that risk. So we can have some control over those little marbles and change our risk just by the way that we live our lifestyle. But genetics can be really important and sometimes it can be the least important of all of our risks and it just depends on what it is. So I liked that you pointed out that we all have a risk. It, it never is zero from a colon cancer specific risk, you know, everybody hears in the news about this 100% increase in those presenting between the ages of 18 and 35 with colon cancer. Well, those are not the same presentation as the, the patient that's 65 that comes in with colon cancer. These are patients who show up with more aggressive stage three, stage four disease. They're patients that show up with an increased risk of a family member previously having colon cancer, their increased risk of a genetically associated cancer. So I don't think we can look at them the same. And I think that's one of the reasons that the American Cancer Society started this trend of moving down to age 45. You know, even for the last eight years, we have had a recommendation that African Americans should come in and get screened at the age of 45. And that just gives us a very rudimentary glimpse into this, an at-risk population. Certainly diet and environment cannot be ignored, but in general, I think we have to look at this younger group of patients coming in with colon cancers as being a little bit different and potentially a better population to be using some genetic targets and be thinking about these are, you know, these are genetically predisposed patients that are coming in with these more aggressive cancers. Dr. Palmer, I couldn't agree more. I think some of the population-based studies that we've been working on are bearing out exactly what you just said. The people in an unselected group of people who do prophylactic or pre-symptomatic genetic screening, 
those who are between the ages of 20 to 35 are those we can make the most profound impact on. They've not yet reached that age where just by chance they would be expected to have had some sort of an event. Participants who come in who are 55, 60, 70 years old will find a BRCA mutation and they'll say, oh yeah, I already knew about that. But we do, and we have been finding people who are, like I said, in that 20 to 35 year old range and they go, I had no clue. They may know when they talk to their extended family, but their extended family wasn't talking about it in an open way. But before this test, uh, they did not know that this was something that they were at risk for. So that age group, just agreeing with you, that age group is of critical importance as we go forward with population-based genetic testing. I'd like to turn it back for a minute to Teresa, because I think there still are a lot of barriers to discussing the C word within cultures, within families. As a genetic counselor, how do we help to break down some of those barriers and help patients start to talk to each other or open communication lines? Because my worry is some of these individuals maybe aren't having those literally crucial conversations with others about the need to get screened. Yeah, those are really hard conversations to have because these patients come to us with 35 or 45 years of experience in that culture. And to think that in one hour conversation with me, I'm going to change their culture and comfort level in discussing that with families is probably a little naive, but we really do try to work with families and try to understand what they see the barriers to those communications are and give them any possible tools that we can. It starts with the medical community itself being able to have those conversations, physicians being comfortable having those conversations with their patients in a way that makes it feel okay and safe to talk about and help give them some language to help with their family members where that may not be um, something. And and we know that with our own family and our own parents where they don't want to hurt us. They don't want us to be worried about them. So they don't tell us about those things. It's real. And I don't think there's easy solutions to it, but I think just making a safe place for our patients to talk about it is a good start. I would add that the flip side to that coin are these really horrible autosomal dominant cancer syndromes like FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis, where you just have a string of a generation that's just been decimated by early cancers. And it's very, very difficult, both for the patients to have to look that in the face and know that they've seen so many of their relatives with these horrible cancers. And also it it can really make it tough on the economics of the family, because in, in many of these family groups, there's not a lot of elder folks. There's not people who've lived out their time. And so it's hard. I've seen a few of these examples where it's tough for the patients. It's just so impossible for them to deal with mm-hmm. such a, a terrible situation. It is. And, and I've worked with some of those families as well. And, and two things come to mind. I think one is with the genetic testing piece of it. And some people are often afraid to go forward with testing. And I think it's always important for them to remember that the risk doesn't go away because you've chosen not to learn of it. And that's not to say we push people into testing. We always want patients to make individual choices about that. I think the other concept that's really hard for patients to often come to grips with is 
when we're talking about a dominant condition where the risk is 50%, the risk is either you have that genetic change and you have that high risk, or there's an equal chance that you don't have that genetic change and you don't have that high risk for FAP. That's a much different concept than the previous conversation we just had about a more general risk for something like breast cancer or colon cancer overall. We can truly tell patients whether they are at risk or they aren't at risk. They don't maintain this ongoing lifelong residual risk of 50% for that condition. We can solidify that for them. Teresa, I wonder if you might comment also on the role of genetic counselors when you do find, you've, you've alluded to it a little bit, but even in the situation of a BRCA mutation, it's not 100%. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the fact that when people don't have a genetic predisposition, it doesn't mean there's no risk. But on the other hand, even in the setting, for instance, of a BRCA2 mutation, It's not 100% they're going to get breast cancer. So tell me about the role of genetic counseling for those individuals as well. What can we tell our audience about how important the role is in that setting? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot that goes into those conversations with patients who have now been found to be at risk for a particular condition. So if we think about something like a BRCA mutation in a patient who doesn't yet have cancer, we can provide for them that there is an increased risk and it is a significantly increased risk that does not mean 100%. But particularly in breast cancer, there's actually a lot that we can offer them. We can offer them earlier surveillance, as Dr. Ferber talked about. There are certain medications that can be taken before they get cancer to reduce that risk. And there are prophylactic surgeries that can be done that can also significantly reduce that risk down to a very small risk. Um, So we have those conversations with them about their own personal care and how we can now specialize their care better knowing that they have this risk. The second part of that conversation is what does this mean for their family members, their brothers and sisters, their children, their parents, and we help guide them through those conversations as well and try to help facilitate materials for them to share with their families so they too can benefit from genetic testing and find out if they also might need to be having those same conversations or could be relieved of that risk by having testing and finding they don't carry that familial mutation. Thank you. I guess I'd like to open it up for some closing comments from any of the participants. Uh, This has been a fascinating talk and I think really emphasizes genomics and healthcare. It really does matter in many, many ways. So it's not something for the subspecialists or the super, super subspecialists, but it really is for everyone. Closing comments from anyone in particular about your view or vision with regard to this? Yeah, I could start by saying for so long, we, we've we said genetic testing is coming. It, it's going to be more and more integrated. And, and I guess I would say it's here now. We have over 25 million people who have chosen to participate in direct-to-consumer testing alone. And some of those tests have now moved beyond just finding out if you have the curly hair gene or you have a specific ancestry. There are direct-to-consumer tests or consumer-initiated tests that can give some very important information. So I think increasingly we're going to see our patients driving genetic testing more and more and not just waiting for 
us to recommend it. So I would say to everyone, as much as you can continue to learn, continue to embrace genetics and genomics and your colleagues who have studied and and been in the field, we love to educate. We love to work with our colleagues in primary care in all departments. So I think it's here and I'm really excited for the day where we really do have that genetic information on all of our patients. And it's as common as somebody's weight and height in their medical chart. I would say where this is now compared to where we were five years ago, compared to where we're going to be in 10 years, the statement's been made, this is here. It is in front of us and it's becoming less and less expensive. And the barriers for patients to get this information are coming down. I think that we are going to be forced to reckon with the patients that come with direct consumer testing into the office and have questions. And I think that that will force everyone from primary care to subspecialist, everyone to get the knowledge they need for this, because while there are going to be some fantastic advantages to continuing to use an electronic medical record that will help us with this and try to answer some of the questions for us, I do think that it's on the providers to have some very basic understanding of what type of questions the patients might ask you. And so to those who are thinking, oh, this is in the future, you know, we don't, we don't have to worry about this. I'm going to be retired before this matters. That is not the case. It is here. It is now. And we all are going to have to, as a good thing, learn to put this into our practice to serve our patients. Dr. Palmer, let me springboard off of that with my closing comment. And I agree 110% with everything that's been said here. Of course, we're preaching to the choir, right? And we're all the converted, so to speak. But I do think that Many of these opportunities have started in our specialty clinics, and as Dr. Palmer has said, they're going to meet and are meeting the general practice. And as we're thinking about that, I think we need to keep a very close eye on healthcare disparity and make sure that these things aren't just being offered and recommended to our patients with or our patients who have resources. We're really trying to make sure that all of our patients walking through the doors of the Mayo Clinic can take advantage of the powers that preventive genetic medicine can provide to them. And it'll become even more and more important as we branch out beyond those initial CDC tier one things like breast and and colon and hypercholesterolemia and get into uh, more complicated things like diabetes or heart disease and all of these other things. They're more complicated and we're not there yet, but it's gonna be really important that we close that gap and make sure that everybody has access to these great tools. Today, we've been joined by Teresa Kruselbrink, Dr. Matthew Ferber, and Dr. William Palmer. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. See, your genes really matter. Genomics is here to stay. So jump on board and hang on because you're just starting to take the ride, my friends. Thank you all very much and have a wonderful day. 